Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Now Coral Prime, who's one out of four tonight. Yeah, a lot happening after the game. Fireworks and then Curtis Blow concert. You know, it's amazing. You play all these games, all these pitches, all these hits, homers, and whatever, and still it comes down to one last pitch. And there's always a melancholy feeling to it because, you know, fans are somewhat melancholy. This is the last game. Right. This one missing outside of the count. One ball, two strikes. But the old line, Jeff, hope springs eternal. It's true. And one, two pitches, high and tight. And the count, two balls, two strikes. Now, the argument's obviously making a dent in this community. I mean, I know they would have loved to win more games, but Brian swings and tries one towards right. Barfield is underneath, right in front of the fence, and he makes the catch to end the game. And the Yard Goats 2017 first season at Dunkin' Donuts Park. Final score, the Yard Goats lose it 9-3. We'll be back with the postgame show next. This is Yard Goats Baseball. Five days later, it's September 5th, the day after Labor Day, the day after the Yard Goats season ended up in Binghamton, five days after the Yard Goats' home season ended with a 9-3 loss to the Portland Sea Dogs here at Dunkin' Donuts Park. So right now, yeah, we want to get... We're just worried about the grass. Everything we're doing right now is for recovery. This is head groundskeeper Kyle Calhoun. It's his tractor I'm riding on, riding around the warning track. So we just played over close to 100 games in, in three and a half, four months. So right now, it's all about uh, recovering the field. That 100 games figure includes softball games, and little league games, and high school games, and college games, and international games, and probably some other kinds of games. I wasn't going to work yesterday on Labor Day, but we ended up coming in. We, we, it took us close to 10 hours to aerify the entire field. We did one and a half inch spacing. The Yard Goats played 70 games in this park this year, and they won 34 of them. Overall, they ended up 15 games under 500 and 29 and a half games behind the Trenton Thunder in the Eastern League's Eastern Division. Basically, the reason for doing that is we've built up a lot of compaction over the course of the last month. Win or lose, brand new ballpark with a brand new ball field or no, all that baseball takes its toll. We get a lot more aggressive with it in the offseason. You're not as concerned because what happens is you really soften up the soil. So it's not an ideal playing condition, you know, right after you do it. And now, with the season's worth of games finally played in this park... With the Yard Goats' second, first season behind them, Calhoun's setting about repairing his field, preparing his field for a cold New England offseason. So when you mow a lot of the grass clippings, like basically in your home lawn, if you're not bagging it every time, all that, all that uh, organic material builds up and creates, uh, it's bad for drainage, it increases the chance for disease. I never remove my clippings when I mow my lawn. <laughs> it's uh, a lot more labor-intensive to do so, yes. From WNPR, this is the second first season of behind-the-scenes podcast about the making of a baseball team on a year-long do-over. I'm Jonathan McNichol. 
There are 203 ballparks currently being used by affiliated professional baseball teams in the United States, 30 in the major leagues, 23 spring training facilities used by the big league clubs and their rookie league affiliates, and 150 minor league stadiums spread over six levels of baseball. The last three of those 203 parks opened this season. The ballpark of the Palm Beaches, the new spring training facility for the Houston Astros and the Washington Nationals, SunTrust Park in Atlanta, where the Braves play, and the newest stadium in all of baseball, Dunkin' Donuts Park at the corner of Main and Trumbull Streets in Hartford, Connecticut. Now, the challenging part to that was it was extremely tight site, one of the tighter sites that I've worked on, but that's the beauty of urban ballparks. Jonathan Cole was the lead designer on the Dunkin' Donuts Park project, and his firm, Pendulum, was the architect of record. As we were going through the design process, you know, there was always this vision of making this a mini major league ballpark. We started talking about the quirks of, you know, the the ballparks that we all love the best are the ones that were birthed from site challenges. Thing about Fenway, why is Fenway the way it is? Well, because they were landlocked, right? Fenway Park is squeezed into what passes for a city block in Boston. And so the left field wall, the Green Monster, is 37 feet 2 inches tall to make up for the fact that it's just 310 feet from home plate. You know, we had to move Trumbull. Uh, If we would have left Trumbull where it originally was, Trumbull was running through the outfield (laughs) where it currently sits. Still, though, the right field corner at Dunkin' Donuts Park is just 308 feet deep. And that's the way parks were designed, you know, a century ago, where the shape of the park was very much a function of the streets around it. Joe Mock runs BaseballParks.com, a website that covers all the goings-on in the world of, well, baseball parks. So you might have funny angles and really deep center fields and all kinds of things that you wouldn't do today. Well, Dunkin' Donuts Park has that feel to it. It's almost like the city dictated how it was designed, and I like that a lot. Rather than building a tall wall to mitigate the short porch, Dunkin' Donuts Park has two levels of seating in right field, which is by itself an oddity in minor league baseball. But the park's defining feature from a baseball standpoint is the netting that covers the opening in front of the lower deck of seats. The effect is the same as if Fenway's Green Monster had seats in it. Home runs only become home runs when they clear the facing of the second deck above the netting, 25 feet 3 inches above the ground. Balls hit off the netting remain in play. Anybody can do a 325, 400, 325, you know, but it's the, you know, people that are trying to standardize the game are the ones that I think are going to take away from the real character of what makes ballpark special. 308 down the right field line, that's what makes it different. That's one thing I'm really looking for when I'm assessing a, a new ballpark is, does it look like every other ballpark that's open in the last 10 years? And Dunkin' Donuts Park does not. Joe Mock has been to all 203 of the current pro ballparks, and about 150 other ones, too. You know, other parks don't have that kind of double-deck, old-time throwback feature in right field, and they don't have the kind of sight lines, and they don't have that, that knuckle down the right field line and those kinds of things. The knuckle is the expansive main entrance to the park at the corner of Trumbull and Main. As you enter to your right along Trumbull Street, there's a long covered concourse under the second deck out to a children's play area behind center field. And in front of you is a broad concourse along Main Street behind the first baseline seats down toward home plate. 
you know, it feels like an old ballpark because it's got that heavy steel. You've got, you know, these, you know, little what I call peekaboos or these little look throughs, you know, that you that you get as you walk the concourse. And then the concourse opens up and it's this wide 40 foot concourse. The concourse, in fact, runs 1600 feet, 360 degrees all the way around the stadium. Another sort of deluxe feature for a minor league ballpark. It's all of the modern technology and modern conveniences of what you would consider a state-of-the-art ballpark with some old school. You know, to me, when you walk underneath uh, a long trumbull underneath the upper deck, that feels like Fenway to me. Modern technology like the 250-foot-wide LED scoreboard in right field or the 4,800-square-foot video board in left field that's bigger and newer and better than the Jumbotron at, for instance, Coors Field in Denver. And modern conveniences like the Sky Bar out in the upper deck in center field, or the actual Dunkin' Donuts down behind home plate where they sell the infamous BLTDD, bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiched between two glazed donuts. And there's the Bears' smokehouse in the left field corner. And of course, I've always figured that that was strategically located so that the smell of the barbecue wafts around the whole ballpark and gets everyone hungry for barbecue. But even with all the features and amenities and quirks of the interior of the ballpark, it's some signage on the outside that architect Jonathan Cole is happiest about. You know, I think one of the things that I'm proudest of is the billboards above the team store and the messaging, you know, the no goats, no glory above the team store. Out on Main Street, there are four 16-foot-tall pictures, photographs of regular people wearing Yard Goats merchandise. It looks like the sort of thing you'd see outside the Gap, really, more than a ballpark, except that the signs read in the distinctive Yard Goats typeface, no goats, no glory. It makes it feel urban. And that was the whole goal, was this is an urban ballpark. So that just adds to the fact that we started and set the pace for what the urban environment should be around it. And I think that's what ballparks do. And I think it fits beautifully into that Hartford environment, that downtown environment. I've seen all the pro ballparks. This one has a real sense of place. And I can't wait to see more of the development start growing around it when they get all the lawsuits settled and all that kind of stuff. That's what the beauty of an urban ballpark is. And I think that, you know, where it's located right now, especially if you stand, you know, on Trumbull uh, in, the, in the heart of downtown and look back towards the ballpark, you know, it's a great visual terminating point. A sports stadium has a number of different constituencies. Its first is probably the team itself players. It's really exciting to come here and play every day, especially, you know, when we're playing at home, because there's the fans are, are unbelievable. Ashley Grader is the 26-year-old prospect who played here last year in the lost Road Goats season, and then again this year. The stadium is packed out every game, and even during the week and stuff, and, you know, night games, there's, there's a lot of people here, and we've had tons of sellout crowds. The Yard Goats sold out 41 times this season and had a total attendance just shy of 400,000 the second most in the Eastern League, and the highest total attendance for any professional baseball team in Connecticut's history. Plus the facilities are amazing, so the batting cages are are really nice. Our locker room's really nice. I mean, it's a, one of the best facilities that I've ever been in. After his Eastern League All-Star season, there's a decent chance Grader will be back here for a third season next year. I tell you what, this year has made up for the for the lack of not being able to play here last year. 
after the team, there's the fans, the ticket holders. It's such a great stadium that we sort of enjoy coming, so we've come a couple of times over the, over the summer. You know, it's friendly. It's beautiful. I like it. You know, I mean, bringing local community, you got local people coming together. So it's a good thing. It's good for Hartford. Excellent. Best thing in the park are the nachos you can get up there at the little salsa stand. This is a massively awesome park. Parking is actually easier than it was at the Rock Cats. That was Gus from Coventry, Alex from Hartford, and Barbara from Wallingford. I talked, too, to Owen. Owen's 10, and he plays catcher and third base in Little League. And he really... Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I liked one of my favorite things about the brand new park, about a brand new anything, really. You like it here? Yeah, it's nice. Talk to me a little more about nice. Oh, it's really, really clean. <laughs> it is really, really clean. One part of the stadium that's maybe a little divisive, though, is the exclusive YG Club, an enclosed area on the second deck behind home plate with a full bar and a TV wall and air conditioning and a fireplace. All we did was want to walk around the upper level. Uh, we have to see a ticket. Which oh, is, I'm sorry. Just we, like, we, kind we of like go up there. Several different exclusions because we didn't have whatever you had to have to have to not be excluded. It's like, well, we got tickets. Well, why are we excluded to all these things? But I think upstairs is a little bit of a more unique uh, place within the stadium just because it's a lot more restricted in terms of who can go up there. I think you get a lot of sort of the real diehard fans that know a lot about the team. So it's a nice group of people to build a chat with about the players and like and the like. That was Craig and Doreen from Columbia and Sean from North Haven. This is Dan Har. I can't think of too many problems other than that the the Dunkin' Donuts coffee cup didn't always work. Above the giant video screen in left field, there's a giant coffee cup that's supposed to uh, steam, I guess, when a yard goat hits a home run. I'm not sure if it's fair to say that the effect worked rarely, but it definitely didn't work reliably. For me, and I don't know that I'm an altogether atypical fan, I go out there and I see people I know and I pay a little bit of attention to baseball. Dan Haar covers business for the Hartford Current. Especially in August, there was a 4-3 come-from-behind win where... Fuentes, I believe the third baseman, hit uh, two home runs. Swung out a high drive, hit deep towards left. Zayner back to the track. He's at the wall. It is gone. A home run into the visiting bullpen. But there was a big home run. Josh Fuentes with a three-run home here in the eighth inning. And he gives the yard goes the lead. Come from behind. Everybody went nuts. Fuentes, his second home run of the ball game. That Once in a while, the baseball is the focus of attention. For the most part, though, as the team will tell you, that's not. It's family entertainment. And you go out there and you see a few people you know. And now in a crowd of, of 5,000 people, 
I think any one of us who maybe has a job in Hartford or has kids in schools, you're going to see a few people. And I think that adds a really big advantage and it creates a sense that you're out there at a big sort of gathering, almost in the same way as a county or a state fair. You know, you go there to uh, poison yourself with the food, but also to see people and, and that sort of thing. And the feeling that I had in the stadium going to a number of games is that this was a more permanent feel that didn't have the sense of curiosity. This is a curiosity, and we're going to go once and see what it's like, and we're not going to go back. It's more of a communal, this is a Hartford activity, and you go out on a nice night. I feel like it's sort of permanently ensconced as a summertime activity for people to come to. But then Dunkin' Donuts Park's most important constituency is probably the city itself. This is Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin at the end of the season. I've been to a whole bunch of games. I've got three little kids. They love to go over there. We've been over there a bunch. And it's great to see a community coming together. It's great to see Hartford residents working at the ballpark. And it's great to see so many fans and families coming into the capital city to enjoy it. Look, obviously the most important thing are the number of people that you get coming into the downtown. You know, and, and what's really exciting about that is I think you've got a lot of folks and a lot of families who haven't spent a lot of time in Hartford who are coming back in, enjoying games, but also rediscovering their capital city. I think it's obviously important to sustain that and translate that first year of excitement and energy into sustained interest. Luke Bronin was elected mayor after the stadium project was already underway, and he had previously opposed the process as it played out. My concern and objection to the stadium was always the numbers, you know, that the numbers just didn't add up, that financially it wasn't a decision that uh, we were, as a city, in a position to make, and I, I still believe that. But that's separate and apart from embracing and enjoying the team. You know, we had to play the hand that we were dealt to get a very delayed and costly project done while protecting taxpayers. But ultimately, the way you'd make the best of that is to fully embrace and enjoy it. The city residents have a special place in this stadium because they own it and they're paying for it. But there is no possible way that city taxpayers in the current configuration can get anything close to their money back for the stadium because the debt is always going to be greater than uh, the debt plus the costs for the city of Hartford are going to be greater than what the city can realize in lease and parking and naming rights payments for the stadium. There's a degree to which the story of this ballpark is just never going to be about late-ending home runs. It's never even going to be about the busted fake steam machine in the giant Dunkin' Donuts cup. Well, I think when Mayor Segarra planned and announced the move of the stadium, the idea was to reconnect downtown to the neighborhoods. You can't have a fully vibrant city if it has big gaps in it. And this stadium was supposed to be, of course, as we've all talked about ad nauseum, the linchpin in a much broader downtown north development. And that has not happened. The larger development around the stadium is currently nowhere. The fired original developers, Center Plan and Dono Hartford, have sued the team and the city, and the larger project depends on the outcomes of those lawsuits. Arguments in the case against the Yard Goats are set to continue in November of this year. The suit against the city, after a failed mediation attempt, looks like it'll go to trial. Jury selection is set for September 2019. But Har thinks there might be a bigger, more fundamental problem at play here anyway. You know, Connecticut's economy is not doing well enough that we are getting people moving into the area and demand for new apartments. And that's what we're seeing 
in downtown north as well as the legal problems. And so for the foreseeable future, the stadium is not going to be that type of spark plug. I don't think there's a ticking clock, but the ticking clock is that opportunity passes and the city is counting on that revenue that isn't coming. And so the problem is that not that, oh, gee whiz, it'll never be developed. You can always develop open land at some point when there's demand. Uh, Assuming that the open land isn't tied up in court. It's that years pass and nothing happens, and city residents who are investing time, effort, and money, mostly money now, don't get the benefit of that in their children's lifetimes. And there's one last group that the stadium has to try to somehow serve eventually, one way or another. The naysayers. I'm a huge baseball fan. I just think this is the worst idea in the whole fucking world. That's Hartford attorney Ken Krajewski talking about the stadium project back in March. I called him up to talk again after the season ended to see if he's budged at all, even just a little. I think, you know, like maybe 1% because it is a nice stadium. Krajewski hasn't been to a game, but he took a college class that he teaches over there for a tour. I I like the stadium. It's a gorgeous stadium. The view of downtown from home plate is pretty, and the third baseline is pretty spectacular. I mean, the bright side is that, you know, it's there, it's working, it appears to be, but I mean, I'm reserving judgment, as I said, over the course of 20 years. It's foolhardy of us to judge public policy on a one-term election cycle or, you know, without having the full benefit of knowing what it looks like at the end of the bond. That's when I think we can render judgment. Now that you've been there, now that it's existed for a season, now that it's um, kind of put Hartford on the map a little bit in a way that it wasn't, do you still think it's the worst idea in the whole world? No. I love baseball. Have I seen a game there? No. But do I think that bankruptcy is a good public policy idea for the city of Hartford? No. I mean, there's an extra $5 million a year there, and who knows what in public works resources and things like that we're spending there. So... I maybe my my needle may have changed one percent because it is a nice amenity for the city, but the opportunity cost remains to be seen. Do you think you'll go see a game next year? I'm sure somebody's going to get me to one next year. <laughs> there you go. So right now, yeah, we want to get. We're just worried about the grass. Now we just want to stay off of it. So we're gonna we're gonna take a step back. We're still gonna mow every couple days. On Kyle Calhoun's tractor, the day after Labor Day, he can't quite focus on next year yet. He's got the off-season to think about first. Uh, we're going to raise our mow- mowing height a little bit. We're, we'll mow maybe like every every two to three days, depending on how, how much it's growing. He's got the winter to think about first. Really, we don't do anything to protect from snow. What we do is we actually like the benefits of snow cover on the field. A nice four-inch covering of snow over the period of winter does help us because it almost acts as like a protectant on the plant. That said, Calhoun does have some plans for next season. We're going to add some cutouts in areas where we saw a little bit more wear and tear. You see at a lot of ballparks where they have a cutout that you go around first and, and third, and we made the entire season without one. But, you know, that's just an area that would, in the long run would help us in terms of um, just more safety of playability. You, know, you don't want that grass uh, blowing out over time. So it's just easier to have dirt in certain areas. It's good not to have to worry about any baseball games right now. This is Yard Goat's general manager, Tim Restall. When you play 70 home games and, you you know, you start having to worry about the weather and, you know, the staffing and everything else like that, it carries a lot, but after that last pitch of the final game, and you get a chance to breathe and enjoy life. It was fun. You know, it's hard to believe. April feels like it's seven years ago when we opened this up, building up and brought people, fans into it. When I first met Restall back in March, he had set up an automated email that he got every morning 
counting down the days till April 13th, till Dunkin' Donuts Park's long-delayed opening day. Now he's got a full season in this park behind him. He's thinking about things like having the Chompers and Choo Choo uniforms touched up, or tweaks to make to next year's promotional schedule, or off-season events coming up in the YG Club. So obviously a ballpark brings a lot of activity, and so it's, it's about bringing people into downtown Hartford. That part of the, the ballpark experience being located in downtown is, you know, it doesn't often get replicated in minor league baseball. So for us to be in downtown and then all the other things that are going to be coming along, it just will be a sea of activity. Do you, do you know right now how many days there are to opening day? I think it's like two, 2.13, 2.14. See, this is good, though. You're, you're a little fuzzier than you were last year. So yeah, it's yeah, it, it's less, yeah, there were, correct, there, you know. Restall was off by a day or two. However you count it, and you have to assume you can count on this date. The second season at Dunkin' Donuts Park is set to open in a little more than six months, on April 5th, 2018. This episode of the second first season included reporting by Frankie Graziano and was edited by Jeff Cohen and Katie Tolarski. The sports highlights in this episode featured Jeff Dooley and Dan Lavallo on MILB.TV. Our theme song is by the great Jim Chaplain, and I need to take a few seconds here to really thank Jim. He did this entirely as a favor, and he wrote and performed and recorded and mixed this great little song, and two different versions of it, by the way, in something like 36 hours from when we asked... And I'm going to let it play for once without me blathering over it, just as soon as I'm done blathering here. Our logo was designed by Todd Gray. Tucker Ives is the digital producer. Katie Talarski is the executive producer. Beth Messina is Connecticut Public Broadcasting's vice president of media strategy. Special thanks to Colin McEnroe and to Katie Dillman. You can find the second first season on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on the web at wnpr.org slash secondfirst. You can find me on Twitter at McNickelPants. The second first season is a production of WNPR. I'm Jonathan McNichol.